Hi, I'm Steve. For nearly 30 years, I've been a pastor and disciple maker, and what I really love doing is helping guys be better followers of Christ and better leaders at home. I'm Mark, a certified financial planner with an MBA and an Ivy League degree who wants to make sure you're making the smartest money decisions possible. And this is Abraham's Wallet. Join us weekly and create a culture in your family of multi-generational prosperity, spiritually, relationally, physically, intellectually, and financially. Run your home, your dough, like a biblical boss. Jed, welcome to the Abraham's Wallet Podcast. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. Jed is a father a uh, Jesus follower and a guy that I have gotten to know more and more in the past year who is probably one of the smartest tax minds that I've run across. And so Jed's been building a, a business, helping people with all aspects of tax planning and tax prep and bookkeeping. And we've had the privilege to work together on several occasions. And I think, Jed, you reached out to me initially because you had come across the Abraham's Walt podcasts and kind of realized that we both thought about the world in similar ways and wanted to help people build kingdom outposts. Is that uh, is that fair? That's very fair. I, I had been listening for a, a bit of time, uh, got turned on to you guys um, by a, a client, actually, and um, you know you don't find a lot of people in our industries that speak the kind of language that, that you and Steve do. And so I'm like, all right, somebody's speaking the same language that I am and saying the same things that I've been telling clients or, you know, other believers and that kind of stuff. I should, I want to reach out and say, Hey, first of all, this is awesome. Keep doing it. And second of all, you know, you know, how can I, how can I help? We've talked about taxes a bit in the past few episodes, especially I would say more tactical approach. Um, but you always hear me, listeners, you, you hear me caveat my knowledge with, I'm usually a part of the tax planning team when I'm working with a client on these types of questions, but I am not the one who signs the tax return. This is not the only thing that I'm thinking about all day. Uh, that's not true of, of Jed here. And you're, you're in it deep every day. You've got every the deep day. expertise. I think. The one question I added to the list that we're going to go through today is tell us all the times Mark has said just abjectly <laughs> incorrect things on the Abraham's Walt podcast. But before we dive into some of the, the listener questions we got, I wanted to just take a couple minutes and talk through what is a biblical worldview on tax or the way you put it when we were talking before we started recording was how does one run their taxes? like a biblical boss. So uh, yeah. I've got some thoughts there, but I'll let you kind of lead off. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a, I, I can, I will go ahead and say like, I am not a biblical scholar. I have not looked at like the Hebrew translation or the Greek translation and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and really I've always had thoughts about how I think believers should deal with this. But even in looking at this, I said, you know, okay, well, what does the Bible say? Right. Let's, that's just a good place to start. To that right let's let's look and see what the bible says and i'm sure that there's a lot of other um there's probably little nuanced verses and that kind of stuff that we could get into the, but the the two that kind of jumped out at me were the first one was romans 13 1 through 7 where it just talks about 
governing authorities. So that everybody should is subject to governing authorities, and there's no authority except for which God has established. And so a lot of it when it comes to when we talk about taxes in the United States, it's all based on laws, which one would think is the governing authority. Right? Yeah. It, the laws is it's them, thems are the rules. And so um, and, and it goes on in, in Romans 13 and talks about the consequences for rebelling against them. Let me just break in here. Please. I'm going to read you verses five through seven, just because I think this is important. Um, starting in 13, five, it says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God acting to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it clearly states you are to do those things underneath the governing authorities of where you are. This is kind of a, a hot button on the podcast for the past two years because we've had governing authorities that have come... In depending on kind of your convictions, close to the line of asking you to violate your conscience or over the line. And there are obviously limitations. Uh, if we take Paul holistically in his teachings, he does not say, do whatever your government tells you full stop. But okay. he also very clearly here says, one of the powers that the Lord has given the government is the power of taxation, and you are to pay the taxes that are owed. So I'm guessing, Jed, that you're not going to tell us that uh, the way you run your taxes like a biblical boss is to just completely ignore the taxes. No, you know, ultimately we need to I think what this does speak to is you need to abide by the, the, the rules and, and, and the, the laws. Now, that means that there are laws that if we can work them to our favor, right, then we then we should. That is being shrewd. Right. So certainly I'm not saying that we should just take everything with with face value, because in law. It's all interpretation. That's why attorneys have jobs anyway. So I say all that to say, yes, we should pay taxes if you don't and you willfully do not. I believe that you are you know, violating what God's asking you to do. And, and it clearly talked about wrath and punishment. So there's that. Now, I also want to bring up Matthew 17, 24 through 27. And I read this yesterday. and felt like I read it for the first time. And it talks about the temple tax, right? So we don't, we don't have a temple tax here, but I just want to say that Jesus's position, so this is actually Jesus was alive and was talking to Peter about this. His position to this was super interesting, right? It talks about the temple tax. So I'll just read it because it's only three verses. So after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. And when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? And Peter says, from others. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. Now I'm going to stop there for a second. Now we're talking about the temple tax. And so one would think that this means that is a, that it's part of the kingdom, right? So I, I think what Jesus is saying here is like, hey, normally you tax people from a different kingdom. However, what the temple tax is trying to do is tax me 
or us, and we are from this kingdom. So usually the children of the kingdom don't, don't have to, right? So the children are exempt. So in one way, Jesus is like, hey, I probably shouldn't be paying this tax. Like, we probably shouldn't have to worry about it, this temple tax. But then he goes on and says, but so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out a line, take the fish and catch it, take it out of its mouth, pay the tax. So in this passage, she's going, listen, when it comes down to it, we're not necessarily subject to this tax. However, we're still going to pay it because we don't want to offend people. As believers, if we are just visiting here on this earth, it would make sense that the kingdoms of this world want to tax the non-children of this world. And we should pay that tax. You, you definitely glossed over a wild story there where Jesus says, just go get the tax out of a fish's mouth. I'm yeah. excited to hear if you have modern day uh, tips for how we find tax, t- t- our tax bill can be paid through similar methodologies. But uh, it is crazy. And, and it's kind of echoed in, you know, Matthew 22, Luke 20, Mark 12, the, the story that I think I was most familiar with when I the first thought I have when it comes to taxes is what does Jesus say? Well, he says, give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? Um, and he was, he, you know, the, the Pharisees were attempting to entrap him. And he answered, much like the tax code that we're going to review today, he answered somewhat uh, without a clear well, this is the percentage you should pay, or this is the... He just said, give them what's theirs because look whose face is on on the coin. I think that it's pretty clear that Jesus himself was not telling us, uh, yeah, you don't need to be at all involved with the things of this world. So if you can avoid it, you probably should. He, he did the opposite and said, yeah, I've given the sword to governments and they're going to bring it down on your neck if you don't pay taxes. So pay the tax. Yeah. And it even talks about in that, in that Romans verse that, you know, talking about, um, you know, bringing the sword in my agents and that kind of stuff. He says, those who do right don't have to worry about it. Now, he does not say, if you were born in California, you must stay in California. Uh, you, and, <laughs> you and I had a long conversation about, I, I'm picking on California, but I'm sure we'll talk about all sorts of- California, we love to visit you. We love yeah. visiting you. We, we had a long conversation just yesterday about a situation specific to California where they were imposing kind of a ridiculous tax. And we said, well, we're not going to, our goal is not to not pay it, but it is to consider should we do business in this state? Like, how are we going to proceed? So, and what does it mean to do business looking yeah. at those authorities and the rules around that idea? Yeah, we're not beholden to just accept the circumstance as is if we can change it. But as long as we are going to, for example, do business in a place, we should abide by the laws that they have set when it comes to taxes. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Now, if you haven't listened before for the last couple of weeks, I've put out a call for questions to the audience. Jed, you have those questions. I've looked at them. And I think I'm just going to kick it to you to kind of pick your favorites. We may get through four of them. We may get through all of them. I don't know. But uh, let's, let's dive in. And my hunch is that there's probably going to be future episodes with Jed, the tax expert. So we'll see. It depends if the people like you and if you get at least 50,000 downloads on this episode. Okay. 
that's the that's the bar. Other than that, I'm out. Yeah, I get. there's lots of other tax experts we can find. So it just 100 percent that are going to be way probably more engaging than me, but not um, better looking. So if you are listening on audio, I recommend. You know, <laughs> Jed doesn't even have a fancy camera yet. We'll take care of that once he becomes. Yeah, a again, I got to hit those subscribers, right? I got to hit those. Uh, I got to hit those metrics, and then I can get a fancy camera. Okay, so let's let's jump in to okay. tax questions with Jed. Uh, what jumped out to you? You you get questions all day. Are there any of these that are either low hanging fruit we can knock off quick, or things you'd like to to hit first? Well, I want to I want to start because most of my answers come from a specific place. Okay, of a goal. My my goal is not to reduce my client's tax bill. And that may be shocking to some of you, but that is not my goal. My goal is to help them accumulate generational wealth in a tax efficient way. And I say that very specifically because sometimes the best way to accumulate generational wealth is not to do a tax strategy that sells me money right now. For instance, let's just take the Roth IRA. Your Roth IRA is a beautiful thing. I can put the money into this Roth IRA now. It does, it's already been taxed. I'm paying a tax right now. It goes in, it grows tax-free, and then when I pull it out, I do not pay tax on it or any of the growth. That's the simplicity of the Roth. So again, that is not giving me a tax benefit now. However, it is the long play. I have clients that are in the highest tax bracket currently, and they are still doing backdoor Roths or being able to figure out a way to do, put money in a Roth because they believe when they retire, they're still going to be in a high tax bracket and having that growth over multiple years, the power, right, of all of that growth over multiple years and then pulling it out tax-free is a benefit to them. Now, is that for everybody? No, it's not. Hardly every time am I going to say this strategy or whatever works for every single person. But my point with saying that is, is that again, we have to remember what the goal is. And so any of these answers that I make are always going to come first from the goal of creating generational wealth in a tax efficient way. If you're listening to this and your goal is just to spend all your money right now and pay the least taxes, then stop working, stop working, go on welfare, have everybody have, have, you know, Medicare, all that. Because that's the way you can pay no tax. Okay, but but that's not that's not who we're targeting today. We're going not, for we're talking the biblical boss. I'll just say, based on the questions that are coming, we're not just talking about oh, I've got generational wealth already in my sights. Uh, we might also be talking to somebody who makes an average salary and hasn't built any assets yet. How do they position themselves for wealth? So I get it. I, I hear you. That's what we like here at the Abraham's Wallet podcast is kind of guys who think about wealth in 300 year periods, not uh, 20 year terms. All right. So let's see here of my favorite questions. There's a number of them that I get all the time. And so, um, but so I want to start with number two, <laughs> number two. Sure. Why not? So number, number two says, so the question was, why can't passive losses offset ordinary incomes? And so let me, again, some people might not understand what this means. And so I'm going to give a little bit, just a small amount of, uh, of background on this. There are certain activities that the IRS says that if you are a part of that, they are considered passive. Okay. And so what that means is 
is, is that you are not actively doing the thing in the business. And so a very common one of those is, hey, I have a W-2 job, and but then I've got this rental property over here that somebody else manages and I just make a little bit of money off of it or something like something similar. Or I have a friend who has a startup and I'm going to, you know, um, contribute $10,000, $5,000, $2,000, doesn't matter, right? But I'm just the money. I'm not actually doing the business. They're running the business. They're doing the thing. That is a passive activity. And there are a lot of rules around what's considered passive and what's considered active participation. We are not going to get into that detail, right? That could literally be its own segment, okay? Got um, it. There, there's a lot around that. Okay, okay. But the rules say that passive losses, if I have a loss in a passive activity, they can only be offset. I can only use those against passive income. I cannot use them against my, what we call ordinary income or active income, like my W-2, right? My day job or something like that. I'm not allowed to do that. So the question is, is why can't passive losses offset ordinary income? And the simple answer is them's the rules. That's yep. it. It's, it's just the rules. I would love to get some sort of deep philosophical reason and all that kind of stuff, but there isn't a philosophical reason. The only and thing literally when I looked up the details around this, okay, so the next question was how long has the rule been in play? Well, actually, a tax reform act of 1986 is when that uh, is when that came into play. And it says this: the reason why it came in was a means of discouraging economic activity undertaken strictly as a tax shelter. So that's why they have stated that that's why they put this in place. As a financial planner, I have seen sort of those economic activities that are effectively, I mean, here I'm looking specifically at the oil and gas and mineral exploration partnerships. There are whole uh, passive activities that are really at their core set up intentionally to lose money, at least on paper, uh, for a long time. And you know, even if you have a rental home, you you generally can depreciate that that property and not show economic gains that are nearly as big as what you're actually putting in your pocket. And the IRS is just saying, we don't want you to take that activity and use it to offset you know, we don't want you to create losses on paper that offset actual gains through your W-2 job uh, and and allow that to kind of happen. Otherwise, we're not going to collect nearly as much uh, tax revenue. So it does sort of make sense. But yeah, I, I think you're right. <laughs> it's and it, it also comes, I mean, it, again, it's just, it is just the rules. And, it, and even if we take it a step higher than that, there's, an, uh, there's a common thought process through the tax system and through law in general. It's called the step rule. If you take multiple steps in a, in a transaction, and if I take all of those steps away and the beginning and the end kind of happen, would happen anyways, right? Then they can take away those steps and treat it as one transaction. And in essence, say, hey, the only reason why you took those extra steps was to avoid tax. And so we're going to disregard those and we're going to treat it like those steps never happen. Okay. And so that's, a, again, that's a very high level thing. But again, if you, as we are talking about strategies, not only do we have to have a tax reason, but we should have economic reasons as well. Not solely, I don't want to pay tax, right? Because right. again, that's that, where that step rule comes in. And and we deal with that in the investment world all the time because the same same principle applies. If you're making five trades to just 
act like you had a loss when you didn't, then the actually the IRS is going to come in and say, we don't count any of those. That's, that's, right. that's disallowed uh, and, and they'll get you for it. So cool. Well, thanks for getting that one out of the way. I, I just thought it was a fun fun question to start because a lot of what we talk about today is going to boil down to, well, that's what the tax code says. So that's, that's the rule. Again, they make the rules. We just play by them. Right. And so that's where, where we do. So I'll take the, I'll take the, another, another question here. So um, if someone owns a rental property, should I put it in an LLC or keep it in uh, my own name? And then it also says also, should we file taxes on, on the rental property? So I, I read that again, and I think we, we all kind of already said, yes, if we're making money on something, we need to pay taxes and that kind of stuff, but how does that work? And so I'm going to have the broad conversation of an LLC, what its purpose is, and then the tax kind of obligations around it and when you should do it and when you shouldn't do it from a tax perspective. There is no such thing as an LLC form for the IRS. The IRS does not recognize limited liability companies. That is a legal thing. The LLC is a legal structure. The IRS looks at it and says, okay, great. You're an LLC. We're going to give you some choices. If you are a single member LLC, so an LLC that has been established in whatever state you establish it in underneath a legal standpoint, and there is one owner that is a single member LLC, you are default taxed as a disregarded entity as if you were a sole proprietor. The LLC has an EIN, but the IRS is saying, we're not expecting some sort of separate form. So if you are a small business, uh, maybe a painter or something like that, you would file, even if you have an LLC, you would file Schedule C, right? That's where it would go on your personal return. If I had a rental property and it was in this LLC, Schedule E is the form where rental activities happen, okay? So again, the IRS goes, great, we are going to disregard the LLC entity. We're just going to expect to see it on the individual's tax return. Now, as a single member LLC, you can also make a choice to be taxed as a C-Corp if you want. Totally your choice. With a C-Corp, it has to file its own tax return. It's called an 1120. There are reasons why you may or may not want to do that. I'm not going to get into that right this very second. The third option on a single member LLC is you can make an S-Corp election, which basically says, I would like to be taxed as a C-Corp, but I am making an S election. Again, it's going to file its own taxes, so it's going to have its own forms. And with an S-Corp, the income or loss from that flows to your personal taxes. Whereas with a C-Corp, it kind of stays there because it's a separate whole entity. Those are the three choices that you have to be taxed. With a multi-member LLC, so this is an LLC with any more than one owner, you default to a partnership return. So it would file its own tax return. It's called a 1065. Then that tax return then splits the income based on the operating agreement, all that kind of stuff, depending on the partnership. and then. Each individual reports the income, their prorated portion on their personal return. So again, one return for the LLC, and then it goes to the partners. Again, you still have the same choices on the C-Corp or S-Corp election that the other one does. So why would you do a, a, an LLC if all I have is a rental property? There are legal reasons why you would do it. From what I've taught, I'm not an attorney, so you should talk to an attorney, right? Talk to a business attorney about anything I'm about to say. My understanding is, is that it creates a level of protection that if something happens at that rental property or business and somebody sues, they're going to sue everything that's connected to it. But if the LLC is in place, they would only be able to go after the assets, assets of the LLC. 
which is like part of the reason why if I'm a, if I have a doctor who owns a dental practice, but also owns uh, the building that the, the practice is in, that building is going to be a separate LLC and the other, and his actual dental practice is going to be in its own LLC or only legal structure, because I don't want those two things to be together. I don't want the business to own that just in case something happens and somebody sues the dental practice. I still have the asset. Somebody sues the rental property. I still have the dental practice. Okay. So it's more of a, it's more of a liability thing than it is a tax thing. I would just tack on to that, that when you're making this decision, everything you said, Jed, sounds great. Like, of course, I'd like to have that protection, that liability protection, but there is a trade-off that has to happen and it will depend. I think that's probably going to be the theme. One of the themes today is that it depends uh, on so many things, but whether using an LLC for real estate is the correct move depends on A, is that the most cost-effective way to get the liability protection you need? We've talked about umbrella insurance policies and liability insurance. B, what are your plans for real estate? Because if you're going to own 30 rental properties, are you going to have 30 LLCs? And have you done the math on what that starts to look like if you have partnership returns on each of those, for example, if you're owning them uh, with more than one person? There's a bunch of ways to approach this. And I would just say, oftentimes it's the right move to put real estate in an LLC. Sometimes it's not. Uh, sometimes you want to title real estate into trusts. And uh, there's different reasons for doing that, some of which even have tax implications in the long run. But uh, most most people will use a revocable living trust, which has no tax implications. So lots to cover there. And this is one of those places where I would just echo what you said and say, if you're not sure what the right move is, this is where it makes sense to go a, a layer beyond what we're saying here today and yeah. say, Here's my situation. What's the right, right way for me? That's right. What you know? Here's the situation. Here are my goals. Right. Right. So here's my situation. Here are my goals. And so, um, but but again, I think the other key to take away is that an LLC is not necessarily a tax move. Right. It is, it is more of a it is more of a legal. So the next one with this, uh, I would like to tackle is okay. Well, when do we do an escort? Right. When 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 does it make sense to do an escort? I'm not going to talk about rental properties because. I can't imagine a reason why I would make a rental property LLC S Corp. Just doesn't, doesn't. I, I just can't even fathom a reason. But yeah, give us a quick, a quick rundown of what the heck an S Corp is for people who don't don't know. Yeah, so an S Corp is simply an election that you are allowed to make if you are a corporation um, or an LLC that has been chosen to be taxed as a as a, as a C Corp, right? So C Corps, what what we call C Corps, um, it makes money. If it has a positive bottom line, it will pay tax itself to the government. And then if you take money as the owner of a share inside of a C-Corp, if I take money out, that's called a dividend. Just like if you owned Apple or Amazon. Not that I'm saying either one of those is a good investment. I'm just saying if you are <laughs> invested. In those, yeah, yeah. That's Mark's world, not mine. <sighs> so, and then guess what happens when I pull a dividend out? I get taxed. So there's double taxation there. It gets taxed at the C-Corp level and it get taxed when I pull money out, not for like compensation. I'm not talking about like W-2. I'm talking about as an owner of the shares, taxed. Now, there's reasons why you might go C-Corp. I'll talk about that here in a second. Okay. Then with an S-Corp, it's just saying, hey, 
we're going to go underneath the C-Corp, but I'm going to make this election to be an S-Corp. And there are certain rules about who can do an S-Corp and who can't do an S-Corp. There's, you can't have multiple, like there's uh, the, the shares can't be, uh, you can't have like multiple tiers of shares or different kinds of shares. Uh, certain people cannot be an S-Corp owner and that sort of thing. So I say all that to say there are some rules around that. I'm not going to get into the deep dive. With an S-Corp, the business makes money. And then it passes through, the income passes through to the personal return of the owners, right? So if Mark and I are 50-50 on an S-Corp, the business makes money. Let's say the bottom line is $100,000. I'm going to get what's called a K-1 that is going to allocate $50,000 to me, and I will pay that tax on my personal return, federal. And then Mark is going to get a K-1 that's $50,000, and he is going to pay his tax on his personal return. So at a federal level, an S-Corp does not pay tax. It passes the money through or the income through to the individual owners. So that is a high level of a S-Corp and the differences between. So most of the businesses that I work with are service-based industries, professionals, uh, doctors, and that sort of thing, as well as uh, like IT professionals and um, that sort of thing. So that's kind of where my background is. Okay. And so you move to an S corp. What's the difference? Why? Why? If I'm going to be a you know taxed as a Schedule C, why would I ever move to an S corp? Because the S corp, the income gets reported to the owner. So again, in this in our scenario here of hundred thousand dollars bottom line to Mark and to I, we don't pay self employment tax. It's only federal income tax. So I miss out on Social Security and Medicare on those dollars. Which whereas they, that 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 shakes out to about fifteen point three percent of until of you reach certain limits and then the big one goes away and you still got right, the little right. one. But yes. But for our example of a hundred thousand dollar distribution, if we were just an LLC taxed as a partnership, where all of that was passing through to Schedule C, we would pay that self employment tax on all of that money that came through because on top of the income tax. Right. You got because federal income tax you're gonna pay. Then the then the, the the self employment tax as well, and yeah, and because we're we're choosing to be an S corp now, we've paid all the salaries to whoever's working in our business, and there's a hundred thousand left over. We as owners don't have to pay that self employment tax on that distribution that's coming to us. Um, but Mark, why wouldn't everybody be an S corp then? Well, I know the answer, but I'm going to let you tell us, Jed. <laughs> so, so the answer is is that the IRS is wise to your tricks. So they say, okay, hey, over here as a Schedule C or a partnership, all of that income is going to be subject to self-employment tax as well as federal income tax. And over here on an S-Corp, none of it's subject to self-employment tax. But what the IRS says is, hey, listen, if you are an owner in the business and you're working in the business, which most of my owners are, you have to take a reasonable wage. And what they're saying is, as a reasonable wage, as an employee, I pay half of Social Security and Medicare. And as an employer, who I am also the owner of the company, right? I pay half of Social Security and Medicare. And in essence, I'm paying self-employment tax on wages. Now, this is where it gets gray. What's reasonable? A hundred bucks or something, right? Just a salary. Seems reasonable to me. Seems <laughs> reasonable to me. The, the, the people that want to make $100,000 bottom line and only take you know, a hundred dollars in wage, that's grossly out of line, obviously, right? There really is, but the, the problem is, is there is no definitive line. So the rule of thumb that I personally use with 
with my clients. And again, this does not work for, first of all, this doesn't work for everybody. This is not CPA said we could do this. This is, this is, I'm just giving an, an 80, 20 rule here, right? Which is 80% of the time, what I'm about to say is true, but there are times where it doesn't make sense. Again, I'm going to go back to Mark and I making bottom line before we pay each other $100,000, each of us getting $50,000. In that scenario, I would probably do $25,000 wage to Mark and a $25,000 wage to myself, which would then reduce that bottom line to 50. So now I'm taking $25,000 as a W-2 and I'm taking $25,000 as S-Corp earnings and saving the Social Security and Medicare on the 25000 That seems pretty in line with what I've heard. Yeah, it's, it's kind of almost 50%. The, the problem you run into is when you have a single member LLC, taxes and S-Corp, and the only person working in it is the owner. The IRS wants to come through and say, listen, all of the income should be W-2 because you're the only one working, right? You're, you're the only one. So this is where you got, that's why I say that in, in that respect, not so much. You actually need to do a study. Okay, if I was going to pay somebody to do this work, how much would I have to pay them? And all I was going to do is sit on the beach and sip my ties, right? What would I have to pay somebody to do this work? And so if it's, if it's $100,000, then okay. If it's $120,000, then okay. And so that's where you do actually have to do like a, a reasonability study for the fair market value inside of your area and all that kind of stuff. And, and again, that's where, it's, that's where it's gray. Those things being true, that's where we can save on the Social Security and the Medicare. Now, the other thing you have to take into consideration is the cost of compliance when going to an escort. Because as a Schedule C, again, if I'm a single member LLC, it's going to be on my Schedule C. I don't have to do a separate tax return. I don't have to file payroll. I don't have to do any of those things. And if my bottom line is $10,000, so I'm paying tax on $10,000 and I'm talking about moving to an escort, that doesn't make sense in a lot of instances because now I have to file an extra tax return. You got to pay a guy like me to do that. You also have to run payroll, which you have to pay. Typically, I mean, I don't know. I don't, we, you know, you don't want to file 941s and all those other things. Typically, you're going to pay a payroll company, a provider in order to do that, whether it's a CPA or paychecks or ADP or Gusto or any of these number of people out there doing this thing. That's a cost. And so we start adding up those costs. They actually might outweigh the tax benefit depending on the bottom line, especially when it's a single member LLC and the majority of the income should be taxed as a W-2. So personally, when I really start looking at it, if I'm talking about a, just a single owner with his own business, if I'm starting to make more than seventy dollars or $80,000, that's where I start having the conversations with my clients because they don't already have payroll. They don't already have the separate return. That's when I start saying, okay, hey, this is the cost of compliance. Can the benefit of doing this get over that? That's, again, typically where I see it, typically where I see it. There will be times that maybe earlier when I started my business nine years ago, I went right to an S-Corp because I knew I was going to get staff and I knew I was going to be doing those things, right? And so I went ahead and, 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 and did it and knew that, you know, but again, I don't have to worry about cost of compliance with some of that stuff because I did my own tax return. And, you know, a lot of payroll providers don't charge CPAs because of the network we have. So again, some of those compliance dollars, I don't have to, I did not have to worry about because of my profession. Yeah, that makes sense. I think as a, a business owner who runs an LLC taxes and S Corp, for us, it was a couple years in when it made sense to make the switch. And we fell into one of those categories of 
you know, we wanted to take advantage of the tax code and, and use it to our benefit. However, it wasn't the only goal. So we wanted to distribute some of the income in proportions that were not the same as our ownership, for example. Um, And so we needed to pay a much bigger salary to those who were working full-time in the business, to those who were working very part-time, things like that. So again, going back to what you said at the very beginning, there is obviously a tax optimal solution and there's a, let's structure this to, to make sense for your goals. And those aren't always the same answer. So um, that's what because I experienced. To your point, an S-corp is very rigid when it comes to distributions, right? So if we're taking distribution as partners, and, and again, Mark's 50 and I'm 50%, right? Any money that comes out, if Mark takes money out as an owner, I have to take the same amount out. It, you cannot have disproportionate distributions. A partnership is different. So again, talking about flexibility and all that kind of stuff comes into the equation and not just, hey, can I save money on tax? And you and I have both talked to people where we, we had to kind of back them off of making a move that they had heard, hey, this is tax optimal, and it might have even been true, um, but we go, you know, you're letting, you're, you're making moves, the one that, that has been on my radar a ton this year is I'm going to buy a property for the tax benefits. And then you kind of back up and go, well, you don't really want to own that property. So uh, is this really the right thing just because it saves you a few thousand bucks in taxes this year to, to make that purchase? So I always it's, say don't. It's an investment. You know what yeah. I'm saying? It's, it's an, event, an investment. And I have people that say the same thing like, hey, I want to reduce my tax liability. Can I just start a company? And, I, and again, I go with the question of, with the point to lose money, is that the goal? Because that's not, I, I want to see your cash grow. I want to see, you know, your, your, your financial wealth grow. I don't want to see just, just money going away just for a tax benefit. Right. And so I think that the one question that I've got then is, for the average, a lot of the guys that listen to this podcast, they might have a salary job. So they have W-2 income and they they aspire to maybe own some rental properties someday, but they're not there yet. They've got some investments. Um, this was a question that came in was, are there things that I don't know about that I should be doing to reduce my tax bill or... Uh, am I just out of luck because I have a pretty vanilla situation? I, I think about some of these things as tools in a toolbox. And the truth is, if you are a, an employee of a company, um, maybe married, have two kids, own a home, the tools in your toolbox are not as great. You don't have as much. You don't need as much, but you don't have as much either. And so many of the things that uh, Mark and Stephen have talked about on this podcast are the things that you should be thinking about, aka, what are my benefits at work, right? What are, what are the things that I'm not taking advantage of there that I should take advantage of? Whether it's, hey, you know, uh, as far as it's a matching of a 401k, uh, maybe it's the ability to put money in a Roth side of a 401k, right? Many many plans now are allowing for that, and so maybe you've always just done, oh, I'll put it in the traditional side, I'll take the benefit now. Well, it might make sense to either put it all in the Roth or split it up, right? Do something like that. 
knowing that my employer contributions are always going to the traditional side, right? So I think of financial planning and that kind of stuff like a three-legged stool. I want to have post-tax money, pre-tax money, and I want to have a brokerage account. And I kind of want to keep those, you know, I kind of want to build those, not necessarily at the same rate, but when I hit retirement, I would love to have a fairly even stool of money that is pre-tax in a, in a qualified account is what we say. I want money in a post-tax, and so I'm talking more of a Roth account. And then I would love a brokerage account, right, that is creating that reoccurring revenue, dividends, interest, uh, capital gains, and that kind of stuff, that passive income. And so, so again, how do we do that effectively? And what are the, what are the, the things that are available to you through your employer in order to do? Yeah. The other one that I know you guys have talked about and that I'm a huge fan of is the HSA. Man, the HSA, that's such a beautiful tool. It's amazing. Where else can I put money away? I can invest it. It's going to grow tax-free and I can pull it out to pay for medical expenses anytime in the future. Doesn't matter. So, so amazing, right? And so, because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, right? Unless the good Lord deems that one day I go to sleep and then I wake up in heaven, I'm going to have some medical expenses. And so, and now that even then, even if you're the healthiest person in the world, you want to take the money out when you retire, it turns basically into another way of IRA. And so it is a beautiful tool. So you should absolutely consider that. You know, we're coming up on open enrollment here. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but it's probably going to be hopefully before year end. So you can make some choices there. A lot of companies will match either how much you put in or go ahead and pre-fund something for you. You're paying lower amounts in the health insurance because you're taking on more of the risk. And so, again, if you are somebody who has to have like very expensive medical expenses, uh, you know, um, uh, prescription drugs or that kind of stuff because of your situation, HSA might not make sense. Right. But again, if you are a fairly healthy individual and your kids are fairly healthy individual individuals, and your wife, so on and so forth, the HSA can make sense. But just recognize that when your son uh, is riding his bike and avoids a child uh, that is running in the middle of the street and falls down and busts open his chin, you know, the, the, the require the stitches to fix that thing is like two grand. And so it's just the way it is. You got to pay that, then you got to pay out of pocket. And that's what the HSA is there for. As we've kind of described the, I don't want to say that I start licking my chops when my kids sustain an injury, but I do think all right, this is an expense. I'm going to bank some free withdrawals from my HSA that I'm not going to take until 30 years from now. And so right. we've talked about it a ton, the, yeah. the HSA hacking technique, but you know, it really converts your healthcare expenses from a line item of expense on the budget. And I almost tell people, think about this as a saving line item now, because instead of taking it out of your HSA, what you're doing is when you spend money today out of pocket to pay for a medical bill and save that receipt, you have now banked whatever that amount is, and you can take it out any time in the future tax-free. Um, even, so, even if you're not covered by a high deductible plan in the future, right? So you're on Medicare or whatever, you're good because the event happened while you were underneath there. And you can reimburse yourself that. So it's, yeah. And again, you guys have done a great job. If you haven't heard them, like go back, find the episode that talks about HSA hacking. They do a great job in explaining it and the benefits of it. And again, it may work for you, may not, right? So if, again, if you're a young family, you may not have the amount in your budget to be able to stomach a $2,000 
stitch across the chin. You know what I'm saying? And so, and if that's the case, that's what the HSA is there for, right? Um, but, but really, ultimately, that's that. Those are those are great things. Um, you know, they'll pay for life insurance. You know, going back to what the ordinary man can do. You know, life insurance at the at the office. You know, all that kind of stuff, right? And so, that's usually your biggest benefit. The other thing that you could do is, especially if you are, um, if you don't, if you take the standard deduction because your itemized deductions don't get up over the standard deduction. So. Again, quick lesson here. The IRS says, hey, you can have a standard amount that you are allowed to take. If you breathe, you get to take this. And then we have all these other itemized deductions. Uh, and if your itemized deductions are lower than the standard deduction, you get the standard deduction. If your itemized deductions are above your standard deduction, and you get the itemized deductions. Okay. With some of the recent changes within the last three or four years where they've really upped the standard deduction, many people stopped itemizing, right? So let's talk about what it means to itemize. So medical expenses, but that has to be over seven and a half percent of your adjusted gross income. So a lot of times that number is a limitation. That seven and a half percent is a limitation. Plus, if you're using an HSA, we definitely don't want that to be in that space because if I use that there, I'm not allowed to reimburse myself out of the HSA, right? So if I say, oh, I had this medical expense, but I didn't reimburse myself through the HSA, I'll claim it as an itemized deduction. You cannot then go over here and do an HSA a few years from now. That's double dipping. You cannot do that. So medical expenses, uh, mortgage interest, okay? State and local taxes, real estate taxes are a thing. Currently, they are capped at $10,000. So if you spend over that, they don't matter. If that changes, then the rules change. Charitable contributions, right? That's, that's in essence. When I put all of that together, if those dollar amounts are not over the standard deduction, you take the standard deduction. So one method you can do is what's called bundling. And I think you guys have talked about it before, but this is another thing that individuals can do, which is, hey, I'm going to maybe bundle. And really, what are we talking about bundling? It's, it's really your charitable contributions, right? Because nobody's, you can't bundle the, your, your mortgage interest. At least I've not figured out a way to do that. You could do it with real estate taxes and that kind of stuff. But again, because of the $10,000 cap, no longer makes sense. Well, it really, that really depends on where you live too, right? If you live in Texas and you have a nice, nice, uh, expensive house, you're paying more than ten grand often just for one year. If you live in Utah, you can actually have a pretty nice home that you're going to pay thirty five hundred a year, and you might get some benefit by paying two years at once. There you go. Exactly. So it all depends on your situation, right? But but the, really, the other one is the the idea of a uh, of a, of charitable contributions. And so this is where I will typically people that are in sales, right? They maybe they have a really good year, right? Hey, it was just you know the Lord blessed us and just everything aligned right. And I had a deal from the prior year that closed this year and as accelerators and all those good and wonderful things, you know, restricted stock units, everything just hits perfect and you make double the salary, and you jump tax brackets, great. That would be a great year to try to bundle those givings that you do. So maybe you're going to pre-give multiple years using something called a donor-advised fund, the DAF, right? They're pretty inexpensive these days, very, very uh, in vogue uh, to use. Um, and basically, you put the money in this donor-advised fund. is no longer your money. You are doing it as a charitable gift. You get to then take that benefit on your current tax return. Then you get to dole out of that over time to any of your charitable contributions or charities that you want to. There are, again, there are little nuances to it, but that's a great way that you can pre-give multiple years in a higher tax bracket because now I'm taking it at a higher tax bracket, getting a better benefit, 
and I'm pre-giving two, three, four years, and then I go back down to the standard deduction going forward. So again, that's just a, an example of bundling, and that is, an, again, something that an individual that doesn't own a business could consider. One thing I noticed, Jed, is that when I talk to people who maybe are a little earlier in their wealth building journey, sometimes we pull pretty hard on the reins and say, actually, like we talked about earlier, let's not try to save every dollar on taxes right now. Uh, because, I mean, we talked about giving appreciated assets. It's it's coming up on end of year, people are starting to think about giving. And they might be saying, well, Mark said I could give stock that's appreciated. And I've, I've had three or four calls in the past five days of people saying, "Should I? can I give appreciated assets? And we've looked at the stock that they were considering giving and said, well, since you bought it, it's been more than a year, so it's a candidate, but it's only appreciated by 10%. So we could give it and you would save capital gains tax on that 10% appreciation. But what if we wait until it's appreciated by 50%? Uh, it means we're not going to save on taxes this year by giving it, but uh, we, we stand to save a lot more in the future. So one of my tips for people who maybe are in that maybe they feel frustrated. They're in that spot of, I don't have uh, a whole lot of tools in my tool bag yet. Um, one of my tips is tax planning paired with financial planning to look down the road and say, this is not the, the harvest season for tax savings. It's the preparation season. So let's set up strategies and plans that put us in a great spot. And like you said, that can be the Roth, that can be buying insurance with the correct pre or post-tax dollars and kind of the types of things we do there so that when we are in a season where we have more tools, we can actually employ them to good use. And um, so if you're in that spot of, hey, I'm not sure if you know, I feel frustrated that I don't have these tools and I hear on TikTok all these people telling me all these strategies. And sometimes it's the season for planning, not the season for actually going out and, and cutting the tax bill. Especially when people are like, I want to pay zero tax. It's like, no, we actually want, you know, we want to kind of take up some of those lower tax brackets now, right? If we can. And right, sure. that's where, you know, we can talk about Roth conversions. There's, uh, there's things that we can do there, right? There's things that we can do if you find yourself in a lower tax bracket to take, to pay the tax now because of long-term strategy. And again, this is where everybody's situation is different. Your goals are different. And I, and I would even contend to say that the Holy Spirit's plan for you is going to be different than that TikTok influencer. Yeah. Right? So any of these conversations, any of these conversations with your tax professional, with, with, with financial professionals, with Mark, with me, with Steven, any of these conversations have to be based on also including the Holy Spirit into them. Because if you're not, then you are missing the most important counsel you can get. Totally agree. And... <laughs> you know, even as somebody who works with people on their on their money questions all day, I won't say that I'm ever frustrated by it, but I have to be very careful not to just tax or dollar optimize somebody's life when they come to me and say, I feel like God's taking me in this direction, Mark. So we're going to empty out this account and do this with it. It's like, at the end of the day, my goal is to really support the kingdom uh, by empowering families to be ready and able 
to make those moves. And I, I know that's what you guys do as well. Jed, we're we're on time right now. And yeah. we have so many questions left. So, so many questions. We didn't I even talk know. about we didn't even talk about travel. We didn't even talk about meals. We didn't talk about vehicles. Cause I know you did a great job explaining that. Uh, and, and, and so I remember I was texting you. I'm like, I got a little couple of little nuances here. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot more to, to dive into. Yeah. So I think just as a teaser questions that, I don't know, I'm going to go ahead and put it to you right here live on the air. Are you willing to come back for, for a second part to this conversation? Absolutely. I, I love doing this stuff, guys. It's, it's, it's fun for me. I love educating. Um, I, I love talking about it. I'll even like, I love debating, like, you and I were going back and forth about that California stuff, and I I love it because I will show anybody my research. Yeah, you know, and if you want to show me your research, great. Let's 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 have a conversation. Yeah. So things that I think will will hit in the future are some of the stuff you said. Just how, what are the common deductions? Uh, what one thing I thought was really interesting is somebody asked, "What do really wealthy people do when it comes to cutting their tax bill?" And then we talked about some specific tricks, like, "Well, can I rent my house to my business? Is that an option?" All sorts of things. So I'm looking Teacher, forward. Yes, if you do it right. Right. Yeah. So I know that we're itchy to talk about this. So we'll try to get that done in the next couple of weeks. In the meantime because people will probably hear this one before that one uh, is even in the can. If people want to to hear more from you, besides listening to the Abraham's Lot podcast, what else are you, where can people bump into you? I would I would love to say that there were places. Uh, there, there are not places that you can bump into me. And I would love to say, yeah, hey, check out our website and contact me if you need tax help and that kind of stuff. But we are at capacity. And so um, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, just more conversations like this will happen with, with you guys. And, and really, this would be the, the place um, to do that. And again, that's why I say, hey, guys, send in your questions. Like, I love questions. There's, yeah. And there's, and there's no stupid question either. Like, just, just ask the questions. We're, I'm happy to delve into it and, and answer it if I can. And this is a place, too, where Judd's been a part of our circle community uh, for a while now. Uh, so we are having conversations already over there. For people who support the Abraham's Wallet podcast, you can learn more about that by going to abrahamswallet.com slash donate. And for, for those who think of this as a ministry they want to support, we're a nonprofit organization. So you get a tax benefit for, for that support. And um, we also want to have kind of more in-depth conversations one-on-one -on -one with people over on the platform we use to do that called Circle. So that's an, uh, that is one place where you can bump into Steven, myself, Jed, and- For honestly, sure, yeah. Tag, tag on something. I'm happy to open up a conversation around, around something. Just know that most of my answer is going to start with, well, it depends. Yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, cool. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jed. And I'm looking forward yeah, to for next, next conversation already. Sounds good. Hey, if you liked this content, be sure to like it and subscribe and share it with somebody. And remember, no matter how you're doing and leading your family, God's love for you is huge. And his grace is... Prayer! Prayer!